0: Increment thirty three Hebrews twenty twenty, we see Jesus. And Father, for what we're about to receive, may we be truly grateful. And we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. We've learned that it's usually profitable to look at the Old Testament texts in their context those texts that are quoted in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, to check out the context of those Old Testament quotations. The author of Hebrews certainly did that. If he hadn't, we wouldn't even have the heart of Hebrews, and we certainly would not have the main point, which is that... Jesus is disclosed to be a priest through the age after the order of Melchizedek. The Hebrew word for Melchizedek is a compound word: Malki for king and Zedek for righteousness, king of righteousness. He's mentioned in Hebrews five six, five ten, six twenty, seven one, seven six, eight. 10, 11, and 15, and seven, seventeen, And so Hebrews 8.1 says that this is the main point of the homily so far, or the treaties that we call Hebrews, that we have such a high priest at the right hand of the throne of God in the heavens. It's all because the... P.T. didn't just read Psalm one ten one, but he read the whole psalm because that psalm contains 110.4, where God declares to the same royal son, you are a priest forever, or better, you are a priest through the age after the order of Melchizedek or Melchizedek. The quotation again is from Psalm 110.4 which is the LXX 109.4. And the PT ties this to the only other scripture reference having to do with Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. There's a very short pericope or episode, Genesis 14, 17 to 20, short, but evidently quite important, with Melchizedek's name only mentioned in verse 18. So we might ask, what if the PT had not been attentive to the whole of Psalm 110, Septuagint 109? Psalm 110.1, from what we understand and from what we glean from the rest of the New Testament, or otherwise known as Psalm 109.1 in the Septuagint, that was ever already a part of the liturgy or the worship form of the New Testament church, part of their dogma, you might call it. It was a Holy Spirit-inspired Christological interpretation or messianic interpretation of that verse. And the PT read the rest of the psalm, obviously, and discovered that verse 4 of the same psalm, 110 or 109, septuagint, 110.4 must also be interpreted Christologically, or as a reference to Christ primarily, Jesus would certainly have read it that way himself. In any case, after God brought our Lord Jesus up from the dead, he expounded the Psalms and showed that they testified of him. We found this out most. Graphically, probably in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, also 24, 26, and 27. And so as he testified and expounded upon the Psalms, and that's what we've been doing really for the last few times together, as he testified from the Psalms, no doubt Psalm 110.1 was among them and he showed this testifies about me so he did so that is expound on not only on that one one occasion spoken of by luke in luke 24:44 but we may well assume that during the 40 day period we're going to speak about two specific 40 day periods today during that 40 day period in which The risen Jesus was seen by them often, many times, and talked with them about the kingdom of God in Acts 1-3. We can assume that that would have been a time in which he would have expounded also on the Psalms as they testify concerning him. That would be or would have been one of the best times in all of history to take notes or at least to be most attentive. Now is another of those times. It is evident that the Holy Spirit continued in the time of the PT and continues today to teach, to illuminate the Scriptures as they testify of Jesus. The author of Hebrews was certainly taught by the Holy Spirit, or we could say by Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 1, Luke writes that Jesus began to teach, and the record of that is in the Synoptic Gospels, but he continues to teach in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. So the author of Hebrews was certainly taught by the Holy Spirit, or by Jesus in the Spirit, that Psalm 1104. LXX 1094 was just as significant as 1101 or 1091 in revealing just who Jesus is and what his role and ministry is in the heavens at the present time. We ask the question, what is Jesus doing right now? The answer is found in Hebrews. In Psalm 1101, LXX 1091, I always want to make that clear. The last quotation of the Florilegium, which is that series of verses or a catena of references between 1.5 and one thirteen, the Psalm 110 reference completes an elegant inclusio with Psalm 2.7, the first quotation in that catena. And so Psalm 2.1 and Psalm one ten one or Psalm 2-7 and Psalm one or LXX-109-1 are brackets or the inclusio for the list of verses in the Floralegium leg- that demonstrate the superiority of the Son over all the angels. If we conflate these two verses, we have this declaration of the Father to the Son. You are my Son, Today I have begotten you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet It is not until Hebrews 2, nine, with regard to the quotation of Psalm eight four through 6 LXX 8:5 to 7 that this son of God also called God also called Lord by God the Father is referred to by the name Jesus and as the Son of Man in the act, in the Psalm 8 passage. So it's not until Hebrews 2.9, which would really complete a Corona series of teachings, it's not until then, with regard to that quotation of Psalm 8, that this Son of God, also Son of Man, is referred to by name as Jesus. Whom we see crowned with glory and honor. Though we do not yet see all things under his feet. So we really can't overestimate the value of the Psalms. Especially Psalm 2.8, to 7 rather, Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 or LXX 109. We can't overestimate their value to the treatise or the homily called Hebrews. In all of these psalms, a dazzling Christological interpretation shines through. Better yet, Jesus shines through. The same phenomenon occurs in Romans with reference to the prophets. All of the prophets also spoke of him and all of the prophets were a testimony of Jesus. The angel made this clear to John in Revelation 19.10, in which he says the spirit of prophecy or the essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And so Habakkuk 2.4, which is in the thesis verse of Romans 1.17, is interpreted Christologically by Paul, and it actually determines the character of the entire epistle the righteous one will live by faithfulness in hebrews the righteous one is likened to melchizedek from the hebrew malchi plus sedekah or sedek his name means king of righteousness the city in which Melchizedek ruled and from which he came with bread and wine to meet Abraham, that city was called Salem. We call that today Jerusalem or Jerusalem. And that means peace, shalom. Righteousness and peace, in other words, have met together in Jesus. And look these verses up. First Corinthians, one thirty. Ephesians two fourteen. All of this and much more comes out of the exposition component of Hebrews. Now in Hebrews one seven, which quotes Psalm one o four four, and alludes to Psalm one forty eight eight. The angels are called spirits. We're involved here in an ancillary way with the doctrine of angels or the theology of angels called angelology. They're called spirits, pneumata. In Hebrews one they they're called ministering spirits who are sent to support the heirs of salvation. Hebrews one fourteen is the major focus of our message today with also a nod to a very deep nod to Psalm 91, which is the LXX Psalm 90. Angels are called ministering spirits sent to support the heirs of salvation. The heirs of salvation are those who are about to inherit, or we could say they are destined to inherit, salvation. The heirs of salvation Soteria, are human beings. The salvation of which human beings are made the heirs is identified later down the road as the Sabbath rest, sabbatismos, sabbatismos, that remains for the people of God, is an eschatological Sabbath rest in which all are in God and God are in all, and God is Resting and people are resting in him. That does not imply the absence of activity. The salvation of which human beings are the heirs, again, I will say, is the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. It hasn't yet come. It hasn't yet been fully manifested. It includes that Sabbath rest, that eschatological Sabbath includes the rule of human beings over future world, a privilege granted not to angels, but to the Son of Man. In Deuteronomy 32.8, we find that angels were appointed as guardians over nations, or rulers even, over nations. And so the present world is, or was designed to be, under the authority of angels and of course the fallen angel the evil one has made this world his domain in first john five nineteen, so the world to come is not subjected will not be subjected to the angelic sons of god Beniha elohim but to the human sons of god in union with jesus christ the son of man and so this eschatological sabbath includes the rule of human beings over future world, a privilege not granted to angels, but to the Son of Man, in unit cohesion with all of humanity, in solidarity with humanity. So with Hebrews 1.14, we step into the theology of salvation, or soteriology in Hebrews, which is an eminently Christological domain. It's almost impossible to speak of soteriology without speaking of the soter, Jesus himself. Hebrews 1:14 does not and this is important because right at the beginning of a series called "Lenses," when we, as a ministry, were taking a radical turn in our understanding. We were trained there to discover and to identify allusions to the scripture, which aren't direct quotations, but we've been trained to identify where an allusion or a point pointing to another verse in the scripture is found. So Hebrews 114 does not have a direct Old Old Testament quotation within it, but I would argue that it does have a very important allusion to Psalm 91.11. Psalm 91, which again, in the LXX, we call it the Septuagint, it's 90.11. And it says, he will give his angels a command with regard to you, to guard you in all your ways. This isn't quoted in Hebrews 1.14, but it is alluded to. And this is certainly this passage that God has commanded his angels to give you protection or support is certainly spoken to the heir of salvation individually or to the heirs of salvation collectively. For this same psalm, and it's introduced as a laudation or a praise or an ode and also an ode pertaining to David, Psalm ninety one one LXX ninety one ends in verse sixteen with God saying, Listen carefully, with length of days I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. To Soterion Mu, my salvation. Later we're going to read that phrase again, such a great salvation. It's such a great salvation because God calls it my salvation. Now, again, we have an allusion in Hebrews 1:14, not a part of the florilegium but part of the pastor's comment on the florilegium and part of his commentary, we could say, an allusion to Psalm 91 which again, in the Septuagint translation, not to be confusing, is Psalm 90. And from this discovery, at least 10 insights arise, at least 10. I'm just hitting 10 off the cuff. First, this psalm can be interpreted Christologically. In fact, it demands a Christological interpretation, at least a primary messianic interpretation. Psalms that pertain to David, as this one does, have an ultimate application to David's greater descendant, i.e., that is, Christ Jesus. In fact, this may have been the common understanding from David's time to the time of Christ. In other words, expositors of this truth and many believers within Israel, if not all, would accept this psalm as having a Christological or messianic interpretation. So it was probably common to the understanding of the Jews from David's time to the time of Christ. For even the devil, Hodiabolos, was aware of that, and he quoted this verse to Jesus during Jesus' 40-day trial, there's the second 40-day interval, his 40-day trial in the desert. We could think of a 30-40-year, a third 40-year interval of Israel in the wilderness and in the desert who were tried and failed. Jesus, in his 40-day trial in the desert, was tried and overwhelmingly succeeded over the devil's solicitations. And in the wilderness, they tempted the Lord. In Jesus' wilderness 40-day trial, his last word to the devil is, you will not tempt the Lord your God. It's written, speaking of the fact that he, Jesus, would not tempt the Lord as Israel after the flesh did in the wilderness. But we're quoting, we're dealing with this as a quote, or having relevance to LXX Psalm 90, verse 11. The devil was aware of the messianic interpretation of this passage, and he used it against Jesus. In Luke 4.10, the devil's words are the same words that we find in the Septuagint Psalm 90.11, which is, in your English Bible, 91.11. Hoti tois angalois autu enteletai peri su tu dia which means, or, it is written. He will give his angels orders regarding you to protect you, to support you, to guard you. Does this not have an application to Hebrews one fourteen that all the angels are not all the angels. Ministering spirits sent apostello to support the heirs of salvation. That's a rhetorical question that requires an affirmative answer. Second, still speaking of the interval of testing of Jesus in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, Luke 4, 1 to 11. The devil quoted part of this verse, omitting in all your ways. Now, immediately we used to think, and I used to think at least, and many will still say, that the devil didn't quote the whole verse, so he was misquoting it. But that's not true, because there are many times in the Scriptures when the Scripture writers themselves, and even Jesus, quote, part of a verse with the intention that the hearers will fill in the blanks for themselves. This isn't something the devil was doing as a trick. If it were, it would have been too transparent. He was smarter than that. The devil quoted part of this verse and he omitted in all your ways against what we often hear. It is not that the adversary misquoted and it's not even that he misinterpreted this verse. The subtlety that the devil deployed was in his attempted solicitation of Jesus to trust in God in a self-serving way, in a way that would have tested God or tempted God. And God is not temptable. A.T. Robertson, in his word studies in the Greek New Testament, to whom I refer to often, he made this observation, and I like it. Since the devil had appealed to Jesus to go up on the highest parapet of the temple in Jerusalem, which would be the most public place possible for Jews to see him, and to just let himself go, let himself fall, and he would be buoyed up and carried in the arms of angels, invisible angels, and have a safe landing. And imagine the thousands and thousands of Israelites who would see him and say, there's our Messiah, there's our Messiah. Robertson said this, it was a skillful thrust and would also be accepted by the populace as proof that Jesus was the Messiah if they should see him sailing down as if from heaven. This would be a sign from heaven in accord with popular messianic expectation. The promise of the angels, the devil thought, would reassure Jesus. They would be a spiritual parachute for Christ. That's a pretty good pithy and witty comment. And it certainly was the populace or the popular conception of Messiah was defied by him radically, as we've seen in Revelation. Now, it is not that the devil wrongly omitted part of this verse or deceptively omitted part of this verse. For scripture writers themselves do that. They omit parts of verses. Quoting only a part of verse, a verse with the expectation that their readers would not only know the reference but they would also fill in the rest of the words in their mind. It is not even that the devil misinterpreted the verse, for he recognized it as having a primarily Christological interpretation. He even used the same device that the PT in Hebrews and others used in rhetorical dialectics, and he said, for it is written. He will give his angels a command concerning you to protect you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your feet. There's the feet again, against a stone, which is a metaphor, lest you come to an untimely death. You won't die if you let yourself down from this parapet. In fact, God's angels will, well, they'll have to bear you up. It's written. So none of this involved a misquotation or even a misinterpretation. The devil had his hermeneutics correct here, we could argue. But what happened is, and the deception was in the fact that it conveyed a solicitation to a wrong application. The devil was suggesting to Jesus that he take the superhero route. Be very popular today. People are looking to superheroes. A almost silly comic book and comic books from the 50s and the 60s have now become a radically popular genre, the superhero genre. People would love a superhero to come and save them. And more and more, the messianic tone is taken for Superman and Batman and so-and-so man or so-and-so woman or Wonder Woman. And so the devil wanted Jesus to take the superhero route and roll. His argument was, God will back your play if you jump off the highest precipice of the temple. Just let yourself go. And if you're, you'll be carried by the angels to a safe landing in the eyes of the crowds and the masses, those that see it will report to others and describe this phenomenon. Now remember, this took place in Jerusalem. Yerushalom. Shalem. And no doubt, He wanted this feat to be performed in front of thousands of Israelites who would see this awesome, miraculous occurrence and flock to Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus' answer parried the devil's thrust and landed a hit that ended the 40-day trial. Jesus said, It is said, not just as it is written, he saw the scripture as God's saying, God speaking. You will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. By that shall the man live. But Jesus said here, ending the devil's effectiveness, it is said you will not put the Lord your God to the test. That's from Deuteronomy six sixteen. Jesus did not command this of the devil. He wasn't saying you, devil, should not test the Lord God. He was saying, I take this as a command to me in my divine mission, that I will not test my father, the Lord God. Why should I put him to the test by letting myself go from the precipice of the temple and forcing his hand to have the angels bear me up against his will and against his plan. Jesus succeeded where Israel after the flesh failed. This identifies, in my view, Jesus to be the Israel of God, God's real Israel. And so... Jesus did not command this of the devil but took it as a command to himself as the Israel of God. This showed the devil that he, Jesus, would remain adamantly obedient to his father and not put God to the test, that is, to force God's hand. To have to rescue Jesus by angelic intervention if he let himself fall from the highest pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem in front of the awestruck crowds. It's a powerful thing to consider that Jesus could have called upon this promise of angelic protection in his final approach to the cross. And he said, I could have asked my father to send dozens of armies of angels to keep me from the cross, to keep me from this fate, but he didn't do it. Matthew 26:53. Jesus opted for the disgrace of a public crucifixion rather than a spectacular miracle to confirm his messiahship. For well, this act would reveal his love and the love of God the Father who would go to any end to save the human race and to reconcile all things to himself. The result of that obedience to the death of the cross was a far greater miracle for God raised him from the dead on the third day and lifted him up to the heavens to sit at his right side, exalted and throned and crowned in heaven. That's first two insights that I kind of got from the allusion to Psalm 91, LX ninety. The third insight, and you'll find many more if you even begin to look on your own, But the third insight arising from this allusion to Psalm 91, LXX 90, is that Jesus the Messiah, David's son himself, or descendant, is shown to be himself the heir, H-E-I-R, of God's salvation. This goes hand in hand with Hebrews, in which Jesus the Son of Man is shown not only to have needed salvation from death, I think death is personified there in Hebrews 5, 7. But that he also became the author of age-abiding or eternal salvation to those who obey him. Hebrews 5, 9. Consider this now. If you see Jesus and I see Jesus, we see Jesus both as the heir of salvation and the author of it. He himself was given length of days, as Psalm 91.16 says, LXX 90.16. He himself was shown God's salvation. I will show him my salvation, says God, speaking of Jesus. But he himself, Jesus, is that salvation. To us. So Isaiah forty in verse five, quoted in Luke again in three six, announces that all flesh together will see the salvation of God, which is to see Jesus and to experience his deliverance and preservation. So Length of days from Psalm 91.16, LXX 90.16 is another of those terms of temporality or time terms or really a term of eternality. We find these in the scriptures along with age of the ages or the ages or as we just saw in Hebrews one twelve, your years will have no end. In other words, long life from Psalm ninety-one sixteen, is akin to years that never end, age of the ages, and all of the terms that highlight the eternality of the life of the Son of God and of the life which the plural heirs of salvation participate in. That's you and me. The fourth insight a little briefer this time, is that all who obey Christ, Hebrews 5, 9, are heirs of that salvation and will be shown that salvation. But all who obey him, and this is for another time to be developed, all who obey him are all those for whom and as whom he was obedient to God to the extent of death by crucifixion i can say this because in connection with romans 5:19 his obedience in one sense is shown to be attributable to all of humanity because by his one act of obedience many shall be made righteous and the many there is equivalent to the all in romans 5:18 as is shown by a comparison of first Timothy two six with Matthew twenty twenty eight and Mark fifteen forty five. But you already knew that already. You knew that already. And so I'll repeat the fourth insight. All who obey Christ are heirs of that eternal salvation, and they will be shown that salvation, Psalm ninety one sixteen. All who obey Him and all those for are, are actually should be identified as those for whom and as whom Jesus became obedient. In other words, his obedience is attributable to all. The fifth insight, the angels are a support for those who will inherit such a great salvation, inherit such a great salvation. They receive a command from God, these angels do, and I hope you'll listen carefully because there's an insight coming from these insights that is one I've never seen before. They receive a command from God to keep us protected in this world so that we do not die before our time. They protect and guard the heirs of salvation until that salvation is brought from heaven by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, compared with Titus 2.13 insight all of psalm 91 lxx or i'm saying that for septuagint greek text psalm 90 psalm 91 or 90 is a perennial favorite of god's people especially when they're facing crises of various kinds this psalm like all scripture is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction and for instruction in righteousness that the student of the word may become proficient and equipped for all kinds of beneficent works and benevolent enterprises. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Seventh insight. Though Psalm 91, LXX 90, has a primary Christological interpretation, that is, it refers primarily to and addresses primarily Jesus. It also has an important secondary application to all the heirs of salvation. A salvation that is about to be called, in Hebrews 2 3, such a great salvation. Eighth insight. The salvation that is called such a great salvation. Is so called because Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, is its author and source, as is God the Father, who is also called our Savior, and who wills that all humanity be saved. He doesn't just wish it, he wills it, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. The spirit of grace, as he's called in Hebrews ten twenty nine, in kind of a warning passage, he's also our divine savior. By becoming his companions, as Hebrews two five talks about it, we experience salvation in some real measure even now, a foretaste of it, foretaste of the powers of the age to come. And that, Fullness, however, of the experience of salvation awaits us and all of humanity as well as all of creation in the eschatological future, in the sabbatical rest, where God rests and all rest in him. Ninth insight, that angels are called spirits. This is extremely important. Angaloi are called pinumata. And we get this by a comparison of Hebrews 1 7 with Hebrews 114. The fact that angels are called spirits strongly suggests that the evil spirits that we read of in the Synoptic Gospels and elsewhere, those who attempt to thwart rather than support the heirs of salvation. Those spirits are actually angelic beings who have rebelled against God and followed their own Lord, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, also known as the devil. Tenth insight. There is a distinction between being saved from death, let's say small d, E-A-T-H, or to be saved from great injury in this life, there's a difference and distinction between being saved from just physical death or great injury in this life and the so great salvation by which humanity is brought into solidarity with God's own Son as partakers of his resurrection and his incorruptible life. That salvation is ours now and not to be neglected it is ours now even now but not yet fully experienced by us now not really by a long shot but it is salvation from and this make this connection 2 Corinthians 1:10 with Hebrews 2:3 salvation from so great a death So great a death, let's put a capital D on that death because we have been, our salvation that's called such a great salvation is a salvation from such a great death, a death that would have been, let's say, forever. A death that would have been total. A death that would have been a total separation from God. And that's called telekuto. Thanatu, great, so great a death, 2 Corinthians one ten. In Hebrews 2.13, so great, or such a great salvation. Such a great salvation that we have is so great because it's deliverance from and salvation from such a great death, a death that would be called the second death. Revelation twenty verse fourteen and twenty one eight which is the wages of sin. If sin was to pay the wages to all of humanity, then humanity would die an unutterably absolute death, but Jesus died that death, not us. Those are just ten insights off the cuff. There are many more that you could find, many more that I could find if I worked a little harder, but I have to preach today. So far from being merely the PT's concluding comment after the Florilegium, Hebrews one fourteen, with its allusion to Psalm 91, LXX 90, opens a vast vista for us. It broadens our horizon to see such a great salvation. And to despise any degree, form or possibility of neglect of that salvation, the such a great salvation that we see is seen when we see Jesus, whose name Yahoshua means salvation, Yahweh, Saviour, but we see Jesus in perfect solidarity with all of humanity and all of humanity in a perfection of unity with him. Now here's a very important doctrinal point. In this solidarity that we call perfect solidarity of humanity with Jesus, we all partake of the divine nature, as Second Peter 1.4 says, but we never partake of or take on for ourselves the divine identity. Divine identity belongs only to one man and one man exclusively, the man Christ Jesus, who is the only mediator between God and humanity. 1 Timothy 2, five, He alone made a sacrifice of himself which was a ransom for all of humanity first Timothy two six a fact that was not lost on the P T who preached Hebrews. Hebrews was preached as a homily, but it was also written as a treatise T R E A T I S E a discourse. Hebrews one fourteen then, my translation, I'm working translation for now aren't all the angels Please notice the phrase, all the angels. Please notice that the author uses the word all. Aren't all the angels, aren't they all ministering spirits sent for service and support of those who are destined to inherit salvation? The answer to this rhetorical question is yes. They are all the angels, all the angels are ministering spirits. Now sent for service and support of those who are destined to inherit salvation, which are human beings or who are are human beings. You know, this is quite remarkable because angels who had other chores or other tasks or other things to do, have been mobilized instead to do something else. They were mobilized to serve the heirs of salvation. So the answer to this rhetorical question is yes. But what is more interesting here is the, not just interesting, but more than interesting here, is that the word all, is deployed here by the author. All of the angels are now ministering spirits sent, or we could say deployed in service and support of the heirs of salvation. God has actually deployed all the angels to this mission, whatever their previous duties were. So this is an all-out mobilization of the armies of heaven for the heirs of salvation. Those who are for us are a far greater number than those who are against us, as Second Kings six sixteen says, as Elisha prayed that his valet would see the armies that were arrayed around them on the mountains. Uh, that surrounded the valley they were in because the valet was shaking in his sandals at the army arrayed against them. Elisha prayed and says, Lord, let him see the armies that are for us. The number of angelic hosts that are for us are far greater than those against us. And of course, God is for us, divine Promeity and all bets are off after that. Armies of angels who were ordered to stand down when it came to Jesus and not to protect him from his fate on the cross and his experience of absolute death. thats Those same angels told to stand down are now told to go into action, full bore, on behalf of you and me and us, humanity that God has mobilized all the angels to support those who are destined to inherit salvation. Well, that just reveals how great a salvation we have and just how great salvation, the salvation of us is to God, to God who is love. God to whom belongs the glory. And it's in Jesus that we see Him. Thank you, Father. We are already grateful for what we've received in answer to our prayer at the outset. And so I commit the hearers of this word to you and to the word of grace which is able to build us up and to grant us an inheritance among the saints, an inheritance. It involves not only such a great salvation, but such great reward to those who persevere in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.